This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The Education Next 12th annual survey was just released in late August, and among other findings, it reports higher levels of support for increasing teacher salaries, for the formation of charter schools, and for school vouchers. The details are available on the Education Next website. An interactive graphic allows you to look at the specific findings on a broad range of topics. The overall methodological approach is also described in the report, but I thought it would be interesting for you, our listeners, to learn some of the inside secrets of conducting the Education Next survey. To let you sneak behind closed doors, I've asked Michael Henderson, the survey director of the Education Next poll, to join me on the Education Exchange. Michael is an assistant professor at the Louisiana State University School of Mass Communication, and he directs the university's public policy research lab. Michael, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. Well, Michael, you've been doing this survey for how many years now have you been our survey director? Uh, since 2014, that's that's when I uh, took on the role of, of director. Well, thank you very much for uh, the uh, un unbelievably high-quality work you've done over all of this period of time. Uh, now, you know public opinion like the back of your hand. You're an expert in the field. Tell me, what finding or set of findings in the latest uh, Education X poll did you find to be the most surprising, the one that sort of you didn't anticipate before you opened up the file? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to, to me, the one that jumps off the page as, as surprising and unanticipated is the um, substantial increase we see in uh, support for raising teacher teacher salaries. Um, as you know as well, Paul, like you, when we look at these data from year to year, and, and we've been doing this now for more than a decade, and if you go and look at other surveys that track public opinion on other topics, it's, you usually don't see much change in the ag aggregate um, over time uh, in, in short periods of time. Um, and to see something where we saw a, you know, a 13 percentage point increase in the share of people saying uh, they would like to see teachers, teachers paid more, I mean, that jumps off the page. That's just, that, is not the, uh, that is not the typical trend we see from year to year. I think something, the only time we saw something like that was when we first began this survey back in 2007 and between 2007 and 2008, the support for increasing teacher salaries just took a nosedive. Uh, but that I think we could easily explain in terms of the fiscal crisis and the recession that was uh, going on at that time. That's right. I mean, yeah. And if you go back and look at the the trends, and you know, they're they're available to um, all your listeners at the website you mentioned a moment ago. You can see that. You can see that dip where it looks like right in conjunction with the um, the financial collapse and the, the beginning of that recession. Uh, and then, but things, you know, they moved around a little bit from year to year since then, and then bang, you get a big uptick um, since last year. Well, don't you think it's the economy is doing this? I mean, all of a sudden the economy is, is roaring and uh, pe people's salaries are starting to go up. Is, don't you think that's probably what's going on here? I think that's a, that's a very reasonable um, hypothesis. We know generally uh, attitudes related to spending, um, anything that involves government funds, uh, does shift with the economy. That's not just with education. That's sort of a general phenomenon. And in the case, specific case of education, as you said a moment ago, I mean, we saw numbers on spending, on teacher salaries, and all that drop with the uh, when the economy really went down back in 08-09. So, you know, so it would make sense that now that we're seeing, you know, this this ongoing recovery, that we're going to see some some uptick. 
Um, I think the alternative hypothesis, well, not necessarily alternative, they could work together, is that it could be tied uh, to events and people seeing, um, you know, the recent events in the six states that have had uh, walkouts. That's a tougher explanation. I mean, I don't think we can dismiss it, um, but I'm not sure how much people are paying attention to that news and or enough people paying attention to that news that we would see a 13 percentage point increase. So, Michael, tell, this is all fascinating, but t- tell us some basics here. How many people does the Education Next survey in, in 2018? And uh, this year we have 4,601 participants. One of the greatest things about this survey and why this, this survey really is a tremendous resource uh, for people in the policy community, uh, for people in the research community, is we consistently have these very large samples and you can just do so much. You get so much statistical power, you really can do some uh, nice analyses uh, that you just can't do with other surveys and other samples that are smaller. Um, what's also nice about this large sample, it allows us to really get substantial uh, oversamples of particular groups that are just hard to pinpoint in certain just general population samples that you find in other surveys. So which groups were pinpointed uh, in this, this time around? So this year we have oversamples of teachers, as we often do. Um, we have a we have a, a little over 600 teachers, um, and then we also oversampled uh, individuals who identify their uh, ethnicity as Hispanic, um, and we also oversample individuals who are of uh, uh, African Americans and, and um, of uh, Black race. And uh, and also parents. Do we oversample parents? We, ha- we do oftentimes oversample parents. Um, this year, uh, we do have, uh, we did do an oversample of parents. We have about 2,100, we have, we have 2,129 uh, parents. Each year, even when we don't oversample them, we tend to get a lot of them just because when you're going out and getting uh, so many uh, Americans in your survey, you're going to get a, a large share of people with children. Uh, but we did specifically target uh, people with school-age children in their home. And so um, of those parents, we have a little over 2,000. So one of the things that I always find interesting is we don't really find that much difference between parents and other adults. They, they, they look pretty much like uh, the adult community as a whole. Is, isn't that your assessment as well? Yep, yep, that's, that is the pretty typical thing. And that's, that's, to me, that's a pretty interesting, um, pretty interesting finding because, you know, and we oftentimes think, well, people with specific connections to um, policy areas or, or different sorts of government institutions may have different attitudes on them. Uh, and we don't see much of that, specifically when it comes to opinions on a lot of issues. There are, there are some questions we ask where parents are a little bit different from the public. Parents do tend to like um, their public schools a little bit more than the public does, and they tend to like their teachers a little bit more than the public on the average does. They're not big differences, uh, but they're there. But when you go to asking about policy uh, opinions, there's very rarely do we see uh, a divide between parents and non-parents. So I'm sure that your, that our listeners are, are wondering how we get these oversamples of teachers, especially teachers. They're a very small percentage of the total uh, U.S. population. So if you just draw a representative sample, as, as we do, uh, you're not going to get many teachers. So how, how is it possible for, for Education Next to get this big sample of teachers, 600 teachers, to, uh, to figure out what teacher opinion looks like? That's a great question, and it really is a function of uh, how we go about um, uh, administering the survey. Uh, The the company we use to field the survey, uh, GFK Knowledge Networks, it uses an online pool of respondents. 
Um, so these aren't telephone surveys. These are people that are that are taking the surveys online. But what makes this particular uh, company different than a lot of other online um, uh, vendors is they start with a probability sample of Americans. So they use address-based sam- what's called address-based sampling. It's essentially a list of all the addresses in the United States. They draw their sample from that. They contact these individuals and ask them to participate in surveys, take surveys regularly over a period of you know four or five years or so, um, a few surveys a year, a survey a month or so, and, uh, and they can get some compensation for participating. Um, and because it's online, any individuals who don't have the either the hardware or the internet connection to participate, they provide that to them. So you can really preserve uh, the sampling frame, matching the the, po- the target population. We're not losing people um, who don't have online access, which you do in many other online uh, surveys. So that's what they do. But what, why that matters for us? It means they know who these people are before these people take our survey. Right. Most of the time, if you just do, say, a telephone survey, you don't know who's on the other end of that phone until you start asking them questions. Well, we actually know some things about these individuals before they take the survey. And one of the things we know, and that GFK constantly refreshes their profile data on these individuals, is their occupation. And so because GFK knows which members of their pool of participants are teachers, when we ask for an oversample of teachers, they can go to the group of teachers in their pool and draw a sample from that. And that's how we're able to get representative samples of these subgroups. Well, so when you put all these extra teachers into your sample and, and all these extra African-Americans and Hispanics and parents, aren't you biasing your sample so that it's no longer representative of the U.S. population? You would if you just did an analysis of the raw data. Um, but but we weight the data. Uh, the uh, GFK uh, computes the weights for us. They compute weights within subgroups and weights for the overall general uh, population. Uh, and weighting it's a it's a common and indeed a necessary tool of any any um, any survey, uh, no matter how it's done. Even uh, traditional, more traditional telephone probability sample random digit dial surveys use uh, weighting as well. It's, it's it's what you use when your sample is not going to look exactly like the population. And that can happen just straight with probability sampling sometimes. You might accidentally get a few more women and a few less men than the population. Certainly if you have oversamples like us where by design you're going to have more uh, more individuals in these subgroups than, than, than is the proportion in the population, you need to adjust for that. And so weighting is just a statistical tool so that when you want to get the sense of the overall population. So when we want to talk about what Americans think and not just what teachers think or Hispanics think, right, then we're going to weight the data such that the teacher share of the sample only contributes to the final result in proportion to their actual share in the population rather than their proportion in the sample. Now let me try to say that another way. Uh, if, if, we, if we double our sample of African Americans from what we ordinarily would get, then when we include them in the overall sample, we'd only count them half as much as we would uh, otherwise. Is that sort of that, what weighting that is, means? That is, that is the basic idea, yes. But it's more sophisticated, I know, because it gets into, the, into uh, very specific uh, numbers uh, when you do it that way. So, so one of the things about Education Next Survey are all the experiments that are done uh, where... Uh, the sample is divided into different uh, categories or segments, and, and one segment of the sample, randomly chosen, gets asked one version of the question, and another s- sample gets asked another version. Can, 
You describe for our listeners how, how you do that and, and, and give them an example of why we do that. Sure. So the, the reason to do that is if you really want to know if opinion or perceptions is affected by something else, if there's something out there that causes people to think a certain way and you want to be able to identify that, that cause, right, you want to make sure that any differences of opinion are due just to exposure to that cause. You don't want it to be driven by something else. You know, some people might hear this on the news or might think that or whatnot. You want it to be, you want to have, um, uh, to be able to say that, you know, these two groups differ only in this way, and that this way is the cause that you're, you want to test. So, for um, example, so, if you were talking about uh, teacher salaries, the thing we were just talking about, uh, we, some, half the sample we said, this is how much teachers actually currently make on average in your state. And then we ask them, what, should their salaries be increased? And then other teachers, we don't give them that information. That's right, exactly. So if, if, if instead of doing that, if, if all we did was just ask people, you know, do you know how much your te teachers in your, in your state make and ask other people, do you not, and then saw if there was a difference between the people who were correct and who weren't correct, we might say, oh, here's the information effect. But we really wouldn't know if that's just because opinions are different between the kind of people that seek out that information and the kind of people that don't. So what we do is we decide who gets the information and who doesn't randomly, like tossing a coin for each respondent. And so we, we set up these experiments in our survey so that, you know, some people get that piece of information, others don't, and because it's a random assignment, we know that that's really the only difference between those two groups. And what makes the Education Next survey really, really, really cool, and again, it's because of how we do it, not only, I mean, you know, lots of folks might set up randomized versions of questions, but what we do because of how we administer the survey is we can do experiments like the teacher pay qu question you just mentioned where we can, when we give people information, we're not, we don't just have to give them one, you know, everybody that's in that group just one piece of, one, one data point, you know, the average salaries in the United States or whatnot. We can tailor the information to their local context. So in our teacher pay experiment, some people are not given information. The people that are, they're being told the average pay in their state. For our spending, our, our school spending question, where we want to know what people think about whether or not spending should increase in their district, the people in the information group are being told the per people spending in their school district, and we're able to do that because again, we know where these people live before they take the survey, so we can collect all this contextual data and pipe it into the survey uh, and incorporate it into these experiments. Um, and so that's how we're able to test what is the effect of knowing what teacher salaries in your state are. What is the effect of knowing what per pupil spending in your, in your local school district is? Well, uh, that's all terribly fascinating, but when do experiments go bust? When, when, doesn't it, when does it sort of, you know, not turn out to be very interesting at all? Well, I mean, there's a variety of reasons, right? So there could be, like, you know, quality and methodological reasons where the experiment is just sort of in, administered poorly. Um, uh, or, or for some reason, the, you have what's called in, imbalance on your group so that it's randomly assigned, but it just so happens that by bad luck, you get, you, these two subgroups look different on some other underlying characteristics. Um, and then substantively, 
you know, experiments. Um, you can do these experiments, but if you, you know, try to do too many different treatments, right, maybe your groups get too small and you can't really see. There might be differences across the groups, but you can't see if, if those differences are, are real or what we call statistically significant because you don't have enough people in each group. Um, that's why we try never to do more than three or four uh, arms in these experiments max in our survey. Uh, and then again, substantively, sometimes it turns out that things don't matter, um, that things you think might really you know, have an effect on how people think about schools. Turns out it doesn't. But but I would argue that's interesting too. It's interesting to know, you know, what kinds of information or frames people are impervious to. So one of the things we tried to do this year was to find out if certain words are toxic. Toxic. When you mention the word, right. it turns people off. Uh, and of course, the best illustration is Common Core. Uh, what did we get on the Common Core experiment? This, is, this has been um, one of my favorite. I mean, we do so many neat experiments in these surveys each year, but this has been one of my, one of my favorites because we've been doing it for several years now. Um, and we found, as we've, as we've found in past years, that the Common Core is, is, a, is a toxic brand. Um, when, you when we ask the exact same question describing the program, but do not mention the name, um, uh, there's support for it is about 16 points higher than when you use the exact same words but also put in the phrase common core. Um, so just telling people those words, like the magic words, just saying common core pushes opinion down. Um, and we found that each year for the last few years, um, and, and it's just another sign uh, that of the, really the, the politics that have surrounded uh, common core since its implementation. Well, how did it get such a toxic meaning? I mean, it probably has a lot to do with just the way that, um, so when Common Core was first implemented, it was, you know, it was kind of under the radar. It had bipartisan support among uh, many uh, officials, uh, state and, and, and uh, uh, education officials. And so it was just sort of implemented and seemed, you know, if you ask somebody who didn't really know much about it back in 2000, 10, you know, they would say, oh, that, that seems reasonable, right? Well, as, as it was implemented, and, and some groups um, came to like it less, so there's uh, some grassroots conservative organizations, uh, maybe not organizations, but, but grassroots conservative groups that, um, you know, came, came to like it less, and, and teachers unions who initially, uh, at least ostensibly, said they supported Common Core began to criticize its implementation. Uh, so once those criticisms got out there, uh, what we see is that people, you know, opinion support of Common Core, um, when you call it Common Core, uh, has d declined uh, substantially over a period of several years. Uh, opinion become a little more became significantly more polarized, where Democrats were more supportive than Republicans. But you saw declines in both groups. And so people are sort of learning about Common Core, and they're learning some of what they're learning is what they're hearing from critics. And so that, that causes them to like it less than, you know, before they heard that information. Well, this year, for the first time, we tried to find out if the word charter, as in charter school, is, uh, is uh, a, a toxic brand as well. But I don't think we found that, did we? No, we did three. Um, we didn't. We, we did three versions of that question. We asked, uh, we used the phrase charter school. Um, in another version, we used the phrase public charter schools. Um, you know, and as, we, as we all know, charter schools are public schools, but you don't always hear them described that way. Uh, and then we also asked one version where we didn't call them, we didn't use the word charter at all. We just sort of described, as we do in the regular charter school question schools that are not run by the school district, um, but are held to, you know, uh, certain certain standards and requirements. 
Uh, and opinion wasn't really wasn't much different across the groups. Um, the public, the the group that was used the phrase public charter schools and charter schools, there was no difference. Um, and the the group that used the phrase uh, that didn't use the word charter in it at all, uh, support was a little bit less. But it's I mean it's a pretty small difference there. Um, so if anything, if anything, it could suggest that charter, the phrase charter school is not toxic. In fact, it might enhance um, evaluations of, of, of these schools. But it's, I mean, these are small differences. This is not something that I would make a whole lot of hay out of. Well, you know, a lot of people worry about the biases that uh, are out there in surveys. Uh, how, how do you try to make sure that Education Next doesn't put out uh, some biased results and, and is this... Uh, you know, you can never be absolutely um, perfect in these things, but what, what, what's the, what do you do to make sure that, that, that the Education Next has an integrity that uh, some surveys don't have? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the things that are you often will be worried about when you're reading about publicly released polls are biases that tend to come from two general kinds of issues. One is how the data is collected in terms of whom are they contacting, um, and the other is is the design of the actual survey instrument itself, what words are used, um, you know, question order, things like that. Uh, on terms of how the data is collect collected, I mean, as we talked about a moment ago, the way that this goes, this is a, this is a probability sample. You know, we had used weighting to adjust for, um, uh, you know, imbalances and, and non-response and those sorts of issues, which is all the gold standard approach. That's all, you know, the right approach for making sure that, which we don't get the results we get because we're just going and talking to this select group of people. That's not representative of, of the population we want to talk about. Uh, when it comes to the wording, uh, so we, we these, these question wording goes through a pretty rigorous process. I mean, this, this instrument is vetted. Um, it's, we don't just throw it together and throw it in the field. It's, it takes several months um, as we go through uh, these questions and make sure the wording is, is just right. Um, we we do the, some of the things we do to try to avoid potential biases that could be related to question wording is uh, when possible we use um, you know pretty standard accepted practices for formatting these kinds of questions when questions have been asked in the past and other surveys we make sure to look to see how they've been done and, and try to use the generally accepted approaches so for example the school quality question we didn't just invent the words about you know grade your schools on a, you know A to F. That's that's a that's a standard question that's been used across other uh, survey out, outfits for decades. Um, but the other thing we do, and this I think is really really important, is in some of these. Um, so we were discussing experiments a moment ago. Some of the things we do is we'll ask different versions of, of questions, um, not, not just the information experiments we talked about, but different versions of wording that, you know, might, might use this kind of frame or that kind of frame. It really allows us to say, you know, how much does opinion respond to, to the wording, to the framing, uh, because if opinion's really sensitive to that, then we want to know that. We want to be able to say, people generally think this, but if you talk about it this way, they might think that. Another thing we do a lot of times, and we've done this on our teacher tenure question, we've done this on the agency fee questions, uh, we'll often provide um, sort of pro and con arguments, right? So we don't want to give a leading question that just says one side of an issue, right? We'll say, well, some people say this, other people say that. What about you? What do you think about, you know, teacher tenure and things like that? And so those are all very good approaches to make sure that we're not just 
you know, getting responses that are artifacts of, of decisions to try to get, you know, a, a, a biased response. But still, the most powerful findings are always if there's a change from last year or if there's a difference between two groups. One group thinks this way, like the Democrats think this way, when the Republicans think that way. So when you make comparisons between groups, you've got two different groups, same question, you can tell you've got a difference there. Or if you see changes over time, it's exactly the same question, but you see That's some right. changes over time. Yep, that's, that's right. And because we go and analyze our results by a, a bunch of different demographic and um, attitudinal groups, and because we are able to go back and look over time, um, it allows us to also see that, you know, what, what these results are consistent or when they change is not just an artifact of, of wording. Well, thank you very much, Michael. I've been speaking with Michael Henderson, director of the Louisiana State University Public Policy Research Lab and survey director for the Education Next poll. Thank you, Michael, for joining me on the Education Exchange. This conversation has been fascinating. Well, thank you, Paul. Well, I'm Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday when a new Education Exchange podcast is released on the Education Next web website at noon Eastern time. Thank you for joining me today.